Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Club Book. Um, this tonight, we are hosting New York Times bestseller James Rollins, who I'm so excited to have here tonight to talk about his latest Sigma Force novel. Uh, my name is Kaylin Creason. I'm a librarian with Washington County Libraries, and I'll be your moderator tonight. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a little bit more about the unique series that's bringing him here to us. Some of you are familiar with that, and we welcome you back, and some of you are new, and we're so happy to have you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Washington County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thank you also so much to our partner bookseller, Valley Bookseller. All right, now the good stuff. The, really, the reason you're here tonight, our featured event. Few authors today boast the cross-genre appeal of international or international following of novelist James Rollins. Hey James, I got a little more to say about you, but feel free to turn that camera on. Over the past three decades, Rollins has published standalone thrillers, the popular Jake Ransom middle grade series, and the novelization of the 2008 Steven Spielberg Kingdom of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Rollins is equally adept at epic fantasy, Recent ventures include The Order of the Sanguines Trilogy, co-authored with Rebecca Cantrell, and The Starless Crown, the first entry in his promising Moonfall saga. For many readers, however, Rollins is best known for the number one New York Times best-selling Sigma Force series. Commissioned by the US government, this elite corps explores and safeguards all manner of anomalies with national security implications. The 16th installment, Kingdom of Bones, hit shelves on April 19th. In this story, deep in the Congo, an insidious phenomenon is leveling the evolutionary playing field by turning the lush biome cunning and predatory. As they race to prevent pending global catastrophe, the sigmas, so often the hunters, find themselves in the unfamiliar role of prey. So we are now gonna talk to James about his wonderful book. I'm gonna ask some questions. I'm gonna ask some audience questions we've gotten in advance. We'll also have time for questions from everyone watching today. So please drop those questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will send them to me. We would love to ask as many questions of James as possible and entertain him while he's here with us. So send your questions in. You can also send anonymously on a private message on Club Book on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. And Lord above, if that ain't enough from me. <laughs> James, hello. <laughs> Thank you very much, Caitlin. Yeah, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. You're welcome. <laughs> Good. We're so excited to talk about your book. It just came out. Yeah, it's just been on a week now, so that's pretty exciting. Just got back wow. from a uh, week-long in-person tour, uh, visiting bookstores for the first time, which is um, 
unusual. Uh, it's been a while since uh, we've had in-person events. Uh, my last book tour was all via Zoom as we're on today or Facebook Live or any of the other countless uh, virtual methods or methodologies out there. Um, but it's never as fun as being in person. Not that, you know, I don't love seeing Caitlin's face right here, uh, but still it's just, you don't get that interaction of, of having audience members right there interacting with you. So uh, it's nice seeing that we're slowly transitioning, you know, from all virtual to starting to see the world open up. So it's, that's a great deal of fun to be able to go back on the road again. Oh, I, I bet it absolutely is. I mean, it's been a long time and it's, we're, happy the world's opening up. Is it, is it, is it odd in any way to be um, given the content matter of the book, to be talking about viruses as we come out of this virus? How's that feel? Yeah, that was a, a difficult situation in some regard, is that I, I got the idea for this book um, from an article I read in New, uh, New Science Magazine. Uh, was uh, came out in early 2019. The title of the article was when is the next global pandemic due to hit? And a fairly prophetic article coming out in 2019. And, uh, but it wasn't so much the pandemic quality of that article that intrigued me because I'd already done pandemic novels in the past. Uh, the Sixth Extinction, The Seventh Plague also had a pandemic quality to them. So, but what interested me in that article was they were shining a light on these virus hunters and you know, brave men and women scientists that were going out into remote corners of the world, sampling the wildlife out there, you know, searching for the next possible pandemic pathogen that could threaten the world. And I was really intrigued by that. I thought that's, it'd be fun to sort of have a pair of uh, virus hunters in a book or, but what's intriguing to me, my background is in veterinary medicine and most of the wildlife, I mean, most of the, uh, virus hunters out there are wildlife veterinarians. So that further sort of stoked my desire to maybe feature a wildlife veterinarian who happens to be a virus hunter in a book. And so I began building the story uh, in 2019. And middle of 2019, I had the skeletal outline worked out. I submitted it to my editor. She said, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Run with it. So I began working with it. You know, I, I had a bevy of virologists and medical doctors and evolutionary biologists that were talking to me as I was building the story. And then, of course, about three quarters of the way through the book, March 2020 arrives and uh, COVID appears and uh, becomes a big problem. And uh, my editor calls me and says, hey, Jim, you know, did any of those virologists that you were speaking to in 2019, did they warn you what was going to happen in 2020? Uh, no, they did not. Uh, I wish they had. Uh, but uh, it was actually fascinating to have sort of a, a fly on the wall type of uh view into the virology labs because I was, I was, I had, I was still in contact with these virologists before the pandemic and in the early months of the pandemic. And it was interesting seeing how their uh, timber changed from very casual about their, their, about their job to being very serious, to being panicked about their job. And I was hearing things from these, uh, these uh, professors and doctors in the field that were telling me things that I wasn't hearing out loud in the public sphere. I wasn't hearing it from public health officials, wasn't hearing it from government officials, but I was hearing it from the virologists. If you remember back in, you know, in March, 2020, they were originally saying, hey, don't worry about wearing masks in public, uh, save it for the doctors. You know, you don't need to be concerned if you're in public, uh, don't, you know, don't carry a mask. Where am I this year? The virologists were screaming, Jim, don't leave your house unless you're wearing a biosafety level three hazard suit. Uh, this we're scared of this virus. You know, this virus might be uh, what we call disease X. It's sort of the um, the proverbial boogeyman of the virology world. It's it's a it's a pandemic pathogen that has three properties. It's it uh, spreads rapidly, usually through the air, mutates rapidly, and has no known cure. So early in COVID met all those uh, three requirements early in the in the in the process. So they were panicked that COVID could be that disease X, the, the, the pathogen that was going to decimate the human population. So that's what I was hearing this year. And everybody else was like, in the public sphere, was like, calm down, calm down, calm down. And uh, so again, March, 2020, three quarters of the way through the novel, I'm wondering whether I should even finish this novel uh, because I know what we're heading into at this point. And I'm thinking, well, my books are meant to be popcorn entertainment, the big roller coaster rides of an adventure. Do I really want to release that type of book 
dealing with virology during a pandemic when medical doctors and nurses are on the front lines, you have family members dealing with death and loss and sickness. They really want to release a book like that. So I thought about it for a while uh, and I realized, well, you know, what I'm hearing from the, the virologist was very different from what I was hearing in the public sphere. I thought, you know, what they're telling me, I think is really important that people need to know about. And, you know, I can give this information during the course of this roller coaster of an adventure to shine a bit of a light on the current pandemic, but also give some insight about what might come next, because it's not a matter of, you know, if there's going to be another global pandemic, it's going to be a matter of when there's going to be next global pandemic. So some of the stuff I learned was reassuring. Some of the stuff I learned from them was terrifying. And so I decided I'm going to finish this novel and share both sides of that, uh, what, what I've learned from the virologists out there uh, in this book. That's what a fascinating place to be as a writer during all of that. To just Fascinating be terrifying. It is a little yeah, unnerving yeah. to hear you know, what they were telling me to do versus what the public sphere was telling me to do uh, was yeah. uh, unnerving to, to be writing about virology, about the weird biology of viruses while we're seeing this uh, mutating, rapidly mutating strain of uh, a coronavirus spreading around the globe. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, I think some people tried to find some place where they could pretend it wasn't happening but when you're writing about it i'm not sure you can do that you know but oh, you did find time you also, what'd you say you're you're definitely living in that world when you're, you're writing a book you know you live in that world you're breathing that world so it was uh you're not the best place to be necessarily while a global pandemic is uh is, is raging right oh gosh although you did find time to write about some other things too i know you just had a fantasy novel come out as well did um one of the i guess slight advantage in having my books delayed periodically throughout this kingdom of bone was supposed to come out uh last summer okay. but um because my last signal book came out in march 2020 just before all the bookstores closed down they didn't want to release another sigma novel during an active pandemic phase so they picked last summer figuring well, we'll be, we'll be past covid by then but of course, what happened, if you remember the beginning of summer, they were saying, hey, don't worry about, um, you can start taking your masks off. But then about two weeks later, they said, nope, 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 put your mask, mask back on because a variant arose. And then so they said, well, let's skip summer. Let's push you over to December. By December, you know, we'll be past all of this. And of course, we got all got a Christmas present of, of Omicron come December. So they said, hey, you know what? You know, let's let's move you to April. <laughs> Surely by April, yeah. you'll have this, uh, we'll be past this. So I, I became convinced. Uh, that possibly the coronavirus was uh, aware of my pub dates and mm. was <laughs> just to block me every time my book was coming out. But I think at this point it's letting me get the book. But I had a gap of time uh, because of that to to work on another project. And and you know I've got if I slide this over, you can see right over here yeah. I've got these uh, metal, metal file cabinets right here. This is what I used to be uh, uh, those old cardboard lawyers file boxes, but I've made it more official now. It's, it's what I call my idea box. It's where I throw all my ideas. Wow. From. You know, if I, I find some, some across a historical mystery that intrigues me, I'll cut out that article or write some notes about it, throw it in there. Uh, science that makes me go, what if, where's that headed? Goes in there. So a long time ago, I had about seven years ago, I had this idea for, um, I read an article about tidally locked planets. Uh, it was an astrophysic, astrophysicist, uh, astronomy magazine rather. And what a tidally locked planet is, is a planet that circles its sun with one side always facing the sun, one side mm. eternally in darkness. It's what our moon does. Our moon is a tidally locked satellite circling our planet. One side of the moon always faces us, one side doesn't. Mm. Well, there are actually planets that circle their suns in the same manner. And I was really intrigued by that. And I was wondering, can life exist in such a a strange, weird biosphere. And so I talked to some astrophysicists and astrobiologists that can, can such a planet sustain life? And they were like, well, that's a good question. It's, you know, theoretically, yes, because of the thermodynamics of that planet, uh, that's extremes on either side. There's probably gonna be a shift of winds that are gonna carry some of the heat to one side, some of the cold to the other. And probably between the two, those two extremes, it probably is a, a habitable sort of twilight zone between those two where life could exist. And so then I thought, well, that'd be really sort of a fun planet to set a story in and uh, began building that world maps and creator, you know, try to figure out what would evolve in such a planet during those extremes and build this whole sort of fantasy world and landscape and characters and creatures. And this, the folder for that idea got fatter and fatter. 
I knew at some point I wanted to tell that story, but I didn't know when, you know, it had been a while since I've written fantasy. So it was just something I was playing with more than actively serious, but because I had a, a bit of time to, to work on another project, I thought, well, I'm going to work on this fantasy. So that became the Starless Crown, the first book in a four book series that deals with a planet that is uh, circling its sun, uh, tidally locked that, uh, you know, runs the risk of the moon crashing into the planet. So but anyways, that's Starless Crown. That is so cool. It's so obvious how curious you are as a person. And it's fun to hear how you had this, you know, with that book, you're talking about space and large planetary bodies. And then in this book, of course, it's viruses, which are so small. <laughs> you just, you've covered it all, I think. <laughs> you're working your way there. <laughs> it's cool. Well, you know, I, I'm on my, I'm writing my 40th book right now. So wow. you know, I've always got that antenna up looking for those ideas that can go in that in those file folders over there to become the next story. So you would say you're not anywhere close to running out of ideas then? No, I'm secretly concerned someone will break into my house and steal those file folders over there and my career is over. <laughs> oh no! Nobody would touch those. Those are. I don't know. Cool. From what I'm hearing, you'd find some new articles soon enough. I, I have faith in you. But there's well, some really cool in there. What'd you say? There's some really cool ideas in those boxes already. I would hate to hate to lose them. So I bet. Is there, yeah, is there just to get a little insight, feel free, you do not have to answer this question, but is there one in that box right now that maybe you don't know if you'll do something with, but it's kind of exciting to you at the moment? Oh, oh definitely. I'm not gonna tell you what it is because if totally. it, I don't want to ruin anything. Well, yeah, I can, yeah, tell you what, I can tell you what the um, the next Sigma book is that I'm currently working on right now. It's mm -hmm. um, it's set in Australia, uh, so we're going to another continent this time, from mm -hmm. Africa to Australia, and it deals with uh, again similar to this book dealing with the colonial history of Africa. Mm -hmm. This book deals with the colonial history of Australia a little bit, but also deals with Aboriginal mythology. Some really cool stuff uh, tied to Aboriginal mythology. And it's basically a big treasure hunt around the globe for an artifact that might or might not prove that we're not alone in the universe. So that's what's coming up next. That is very oh, cool. Fun stuff to play with. That sounds super fun. And it, speaking of fun, like you do go to a lot of, or your characters go to a lot of fun and exciting and dangerous and scary and cool places. And someone has a question for you about that if you don't mind answering their question. Um, they just listed a few, Greenland, Mongolia, Angkor Wat, Paris. Have you visited any of these places for research or for pleasure? And which world destinations top your wish list at the moment? Um, of the ones that were just listed, I've been to every one of them except for Greenland. Uh, I would love to go to Greenland, but I've never been to Greenland. Um, the top of my bucket list, which has been on the top of my bucket list for a long time, because my very first book that I was ever got published was a book called Subterranean. And the elevator pitch for Subterranean was I was going to take five characters, drop them two miles underneath Antarctica, throw in some monsters, and then shake. That was my detailed pitch for Subterranean. But okay. it took place in, entirely in Antarctica, but I've never set foot in Antarctica. You know, I've, I've been to six of the seven continents, but not Antarctica. So that's, that's my bucket list. If, if nothing else, is just to be able to put my foot on on that continent to say touched, got it, tagged, cross it off my list. I love it. That's so cool. We're we're coming out of winter here in Minnesota, so I can't say that I have the same desire to go somewhere cold like that, but I love I'm all about this touching all the continents thing. That's very cool. <laughs> um, let's see. And another question from the same asker, and it's kind of got the same vibe. If you could time machine, they say time machine. If you could time machine back to any historic time and place, what and where would you choose? Uh, again, you know, besides being a veterinarian, the, the other, you know, career I thought would be really cool to have would be archaeologist. Uh, so a lot of my books are archaeology. So I'm very fascinated by, by ancient history. So it'd be a tough call. I mean, I like the whole era of Greek and Roman history. I'd love to go back during that period of time. Uh, but I'm also very interested, like in the, uh, the, the 
Neanderthal uh, time period of time where the Neanderthals were co-mixing with the early hominids. Uh, to me, I don't know how to survive that, but I, you know, I'd like to be able to, to after witness that would be really cool. You don't know how to survive that? What? No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. Again, like you're clearly so curious and that shows in your answers and in your books. I like that you're jumping from like Africa to now Australia. Like it's, it's very cool. Um, let's see here. Oh, someone has someone live. Thank you for the question. Has one more about info gathering and research that you do. Uh, they've heard, oh, I don't know where they've heard, but they've heard that you have an info gathering and idea generation strategy that involves RSS feeds and email news on a wide variety of cool issues. Is that true? Does it help? It does. I mean, I, I I always have those antennas up, and I don't care where the information comes from. Uh, you know, I get it off news feeds. I get it off. I subscribe to twenty three different magazines, uh, wow. not necessarily monthly, but they're and they're either print or digital. And okay. uh, but I also watch National Geographic channel. I watch Discovery Channel. I watch documentaries. I'll write notes if something pops up that intrigues me. Um, but I also like to. Uh, even though I'm, I love to research and it could be a trap for me, I can I can research and never actually write. So I made a commitment to myself that I can research for 90 days on a book, but the 91st day, I got to put words on paper. Otherwise, I will just keep researching and researching and researching and nothing ever gets written. But I also um, am a bit of a lazy researcher because I always sort of like people that tell me information rather than me necessarily have to hunt it down. Uh, especially when it comes to scientists, I like to, to have, you know, scientists that I can have on speed dial that I can talk to when I'm writing a certain topic because um, science changes very rapidly. And, you know, what might be in a book, oftentimes the information in that book is, is years, if not, uh, uh, you know, even longer in, in, in age. Even a, a current article oftentimes is three or four months old. So I'd like to talk to these scientists so they I can get, you know, the information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak, is I'll ask these you know, scientists, you don't tell me what you're going to write in your next paper or the book you're working on. You know, look over your shoulder and tell me what's on your lab table right now, because mm -hmm. I need that sense of immediacy because it takes a long time for a book to get you know, from idea to writing it, to editing it. The lag time between publication could be a couple of years. Yeah. Because science changes so rapidly, I can't take any chance that the information I'm starting from is already a couple of years old because you know, it can, can change rapidly before the book comes out and it feels out of date. So mm -hmm. for the, the science to feel topical and of the moment, and if not even somewhat prescient, I need that information from the scientists. And I've had books come out. I've used information from the scientists that put in the book and uh, the book comes out, people read it. And then three or four or five months later, there's an article that comes out that supports some of the wilder assertions yes. in the book. And so it seems like it's prescient, like, oh, how did Jim know that this was going to be revealed? Well, that's because I was talking to that scientist that wrote that article. So I knew what he was going to write. And I just, you know, I wrote him, I you know, beat him to the publication date. Beat him to the punch, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit prophetic, but it's not. It's just that I've heard the information first. Well, I think it does speak to your, I mean, you say you're a lazy researcher, but you're going straight to the source. You're fine. You're really forming relationships and talking to people. And I think then that does speak to how it comes across in your books where you've done the work and you've asked the questions. And I will say about this book, um, it did feel very current. I would say to anyone who, anyone out there who's read it already, anyone who's thinking of reading it, it does feel like very of the moment. And this is not a spoiler because like this is the part of the plot of the book is that they're what is this virus? They're trying to figure it out. And all of that felt very um, of the moment and just very like in line with, in a way that's almost scary where your life feels similar to kind of a science well, fiction. I, I, was, I was feeling that <laughs> same way. And in I fact, I had, to keep, I had to keep tweaking this novel. Um, like I said, there was a lag time. And so I kept, since I had that, that book in my lap for a while, and as the, I was getting information from the world at large as, as, as COVID was expanding and, and I, was, I was learning new things, I'd go back and I would, I would adjust things in my novel as the pandemic was unfolding, even though I thought the book was put to bed. Uh, but I kept tweaking it to make sure that when the book came out, that it was still, you know, feeling topical and current and, and not already out of date. 
Yeah, it really does. And I, I obviously can't see the future, but I can see it feeling really resonating with people for a long time, just because of how close it is to what, you know, obviously we haven't been in the jungle, most of us trying to um, <laughs> uncover the roots of a virus. But um, yeah, it's a very, it really grips you. Um, another question someone's got, and it's a long question, so bear with me, but it does have some lovely praise in it that I want to make sure I read and relates right now. They say, your stories are wonderful and always feel so plausible to me. I often have trouble summarizing your plots in a sentence for my book club. Sorry, I didn't read this before I started. I bet. It seems so crazy when you cram a Roland's premise into a brief conversation. <laughs> that leads me to wonder, have you had any plots that are just so out there that you need to uh, sell, convince your publishing team on it? Or are they completely trusting of you at this point? Oh, that's fun. Good question. That is a good question. I mean, I, and my books are hard to summarize into uh, an elevator pitch of just a very short duration because there are so many things happening. There's a historical element. There's the, the modern adventure story. There's the scientific elements to the stories. So it is hard to, 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 to you know, boil it all down to a little bit. And that's probably why the single books have been optioned by Hollywood multiple times, uh, but it's also, it's, I, I can't imagine them taking a Sigma novel and producing a you know, 90 minute, two hour movie out of it. Cause I don't know what, to me, everything seems essential to the book to make for, for everything to make sense. And so if you cut things out, how is that going to make sense? Um, luckily there's a new company that came in and they bought all the Sigma books, every short story and every novel. And they want to do a streaming series based on the, on this, on the, on this, which makes more sense to me, because to me, I think doing a book or two per season would make more sense than, than trying to, to, to pare down a book into such a, a narrow thing. But again, right. there's, there's, there's science, there's history, there's, you know, fantastical elements to the stories. There's this big adventure story. And uh, so it's a little bit of everything. So when I grew up, uh, I was reading a bunch of different genres. I wasn't, I didn't just like one genre. I would read science fiction, I read fantasy, I read horror, I read military thrillers, I read James Michener. Uh, so when I started to write, I realized I was just sort of grabbing things from all these different genres to build my stories. And eventually, my publisher, HarperCollins, who invites me to uh, New York for the first time. And by this point, they had published about seven or eight of my novels. And uh, I go, to Har I go to New York, uh, climb to the top of HarperCollins Tower, and there's a big boardroom with this you know, super long boardroom table, and everybody from, from the publishing houses there, the marketing department, the, you know, the audible department, the, the sales department, uh, the editorial department. And at the end of the table is the head of HarperCollins, and he stares on, I'm at the other end of the table, he stares on a long table at me and goes, Jim, you know, we had success publishing your novel. Um, we just have one question. Uh, we're not still sure what you write because uh, <laughs> well, you've published so many novels. I, you know, I think you should know what I'm writing by now. But I, I do. <laughs> I, do you know, I do blur the line between several genres, so it does make it sometimes yeah. hard to pigeonhole me into uh, exactly what I write. So I do understand how that uh, the one who asked that question was was stymied by how to boil down a, <laughs> uh, a short pitch to a to a book club and that's so yeah the marketing team is like waiting with bated breath to hear how you'll answer so that they can <laughs> write what i like to write they seem to be selling so <laughs> like, they're good oh, that's really cool well i'm excited that there's interest in it being i'm glad that the for as far as a movie goes or a show i'm glad a show is maybe in the works because i think you're right it would work much better as a serialized thing because when you when you look at and i'm going to get into some of these questions but each you described it as one point as like you know a popcorn thriller but there's a lot in these like a lot of substance like talking about um colonialism talking about virology talking about then you just get into the characters and all their personal dynamics you know like um, there's the history. So there's a lot that they can really, you really would have time to dig your teeth into in a series rather than a movie. So that's pretty exciting. I hope that happens. When I, when uh, I was writing, I, I definitely thought my primary goal when I read a book is to entertain. Yeah. You know, I want people, you know, reading late into the night, uh, not able to sleep, 
I want them like beads of sweat on their forehead. I want them involved mm-hmm. in the story. But I'm hoping when they turn the last page and they close the book, you know, that I leave them with something to think about. That's why I have that, you know, what's true, what's not section at the end of yeah. Kingdom. All the Sigma books have that. Where I sort of mm-hmm. pull aside the curtain and I reveal how much of the book was real, how much was imagination. If there are any topics that interest somebody, I'm going to leave some breadcrumbs that they can pick up and follow. Because for me, one of the, the best compliments I get as a, as, a, as a writer is when a reader says something like, you know, I really enjoyed your book, Jim, but, you know, I was really intrigued by this part of the history or this part of the science. You know, I noted that book you mentioned or that article or that link you left. And I, you know, I followed through and, and looked into that myself. Then to me, that means that the book worked on more levels than just that popcorn entertainment that has some resonance. And I, and I think the book, you know, that's to me one of the greatest compliments. That is a great compliment. And we have someone giving that um, compliment right now. And another question that I have, which is that someone wrote, my book club was really interested in the story of African-American missionary, William Henry Shepard, who this person says I'd not heard of previously. So, hey, that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, and I was, then I, yeah. can I, I'll expand on just a little bit is that I was, I was really fascinating uh, when I was, when I was building the history for the story. And uh, I came across Reverend William Shepard. He was a uh, Presbyterian minister uh, who traveled to Africa during the the height of King Leopold of Belgium's uh, reign of the Congo. And it was a quite brutal reign. Uh, 10 million Congolese would die during uh, a decade period of that reign. And it was mostly silent. Uh, A lot of people attribute... um, the Heart of Darkness, Conrad's novel, for exposing uh, the uh, atrocities occurring in the Congo, but that wasn't true. Uh, digging in deeper, I found out that who really sort of uh, got attention to the, what was happening in the Congo was this, uh, this uh, Reverend William Shepard. He you know, traveled to Africa you know, armed just with his faith in a Kodak box camera, pretty in- innovative in of itself. And so he took pictures happening and reported back what was happening and it was those you know pictures are worth a thousand words and so it was his expose that really brought attention to the world what was happening under the under the canopy the dark cover of uh, of the congo and that was what turned the tide towards turning world sentiment against what was happening and stopped the atrocities or at least you know t- tamped it way down so you know he was a hero of that era that really not many people are aware of and a uh, fascinating figure he was the first person to uh, have contact with a, a tribe called the Kuba tribe. Uh, they were basically disdainful. They wouldn't have any contact with outsiders, but they were very smart people. They were, had, they were advanced in the metal, metal work. Uh, their textiles were phenomenal. Uh, they had a very democratic sort of system of government, but he broke in by learning their language, uh, simply by bothering to learn their language, to you know, to respect their, them enough to learn their language. They accepted him in, and he was the one that uh, sort of brought the Cuba people to the world. And uh, their art's fantastic. Uh, Picasso, uh, his uh, Cubist period is attributable to uh, when he saw an exposition of Cuba artwork in uh, in wow. Paris. So uh, you know, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for Reverend William Shepard. That's amazing. What a, wow, that is very fascinating. Cool, so that, that you actually perfectly answered their follow-up question, or actually they wanna know how you learned about him. Um, Again, I, uh, I, I read avidly and whatever the subject's gonna be, I research it, I talk to historians, uh, find out what their view on, on the situation is, uh, you know, learned a lot of interesting things on like why, uh, was this the sudden interest in the Congo and, and just a lot of information that came out. And so I, I stumbled across this name and I kept inquiring people and the people that the historians are very well aware of him. It just mm-hmm. really hasn't broken into, into, into sort of common knowledge. And so me being sort of a, that popcorn entertainment writer, I thought this is a perfect time to shine a light on this wonderful hero. Uh, not only can I feature him as a hero in my book, you know, he's a hero that deserves attention. That is so cool. And that it brings me to the next question, which someone listening right now wrote, hello, person listening. They wrote this and I totally agree. They say, I highly recommend the author's note to readers, truth or fiction at the end of the book. It's, I mean, seriously, me too. It's so fascinating. Everyone read the end notes if you read the book. Uh, And their question is, 
Was this edition your idea or your team's idea or a little bit of both? Um, yeah. It was definitely my idea. Cool. Um, and I did it for two reasons. Mm -hmm. First reason was, um, you know, I, my goal when I write these books is to blur the line between fact and fiction. You know, I want to blend facts and my, then my own imagination to take you somewhere a little bit crazy. And uh, so I would, I would have to field a lot of email questions and mm -hmm. I still answer all my own email. And so it would be like a thousand people would ask me the same question over and over again. It was, is this part real or is that part real? Can you tell me where this information came? So rather than having to repeat that information ad nauseum via email, I thought, I'm just going to put it at the end of the book. So it saves me a lot of time afterwards. So there was convenience factor. And the second reason was because of a one-star Amazon review. Now I've had one-star Amazon reviews before, but this one particularly irked me in that it was like, you know, Jim, you know, it was like, I was enjoying James Rollins' latest novel. Uh, I was really enjoying until I got to this part of the book. And then it just, it was so outlandish that it threw me out of the story. I just really couldn't accept that, you know, this, you know, it was jumping the shark. It was just, you know, I couldn't, it was just too wild. I couldn't, I couldn't swallow it. And I'm reading that. And the, the issue that he had that he thought was too fantastical to be real was a fact, but I couldn't of course reach through the computer and shake him and say, it might sound outlandish, but you have to remember the yeah. adage, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. In this case, you know, that's what's happening here. So yeah. rather than having that happen again, I thought I'm going to do my, you know, lay it out so that people understand how much actually, even though it sounds outlandish, it's really based on fact. That is super cool. I love that. Yeah. Instead of shaking that person through the computer, you're like, well, I'm going to add this to all my books. No, no. Exactly. <laughs> we all benefit because yeah. it's, Great. It's, I mean, I loved reading that at the end. Um, to your point too, about wanting to keep people up at night reading and keep them thinking. I just, I realized when you were saying that, that I was so desperate to finish the book that I was like, I'll take my lunch break later. I really want to finish this. So it works people. It's a, it's a good one for sure. Um, one of our listeners wants to know, do you have a favorite Sigma novel of your own at this point? And then they have a follow-up, but I'll start with that. Sure. Um, you know, again, that goes back to that old question, you know, which kid do you love the best? Uh, you know, different books are like for different reasons. Uh, you know, Sandstorm, where I sort of first stumbled upon Sigma Force as a group of characters. Uh, I wrote Sandstorm as a standalone, not thinking that it was going to be the launching pad for an entire series until I sort of liked Sigma, these, these ex former special forces soldiers that become scientists with guns. I liked that idea. And so carry it forward to the series, you know, Map of Bones is where you sort of see the official sort of group that, that's carried through the series. So that's special. Um, but certain books I, I enjoy writing. I enjoyed writing Kingdom of Bones a lot because again, uh, I don't want to ruin too much, but you know, the the thumb, the elevator pitch for this is that, you know, there's a village, they just, it's a, all hell breaks loose at a relief camp in the middle of the Congo. It's discovered that men, women, and children are found in this sort of dull catatonic state uh, they can't speak really, they can't move that much. And, but the environment around them has been ramped up. It's more toxic, it's more predatory, it's more dangerous. And uh, so I got to then, being a veterinarian with a background in evolutionary biology, I got to be able to play in the genetic toolbox and sort of create all these weird creatures. So that's a great deal of fun. Uh, so the, the bones is a, you know, one of my, probably at this point, one of my, is one of my favorites because I did get to have uh, such a wild adventure with a, uh, with animals and it features Tucker and Kane, which I, who I enjoy writing. So it's, it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable book to write. Oh, it sounds like it. Cause you were a veterinarian for 15 years before you started writing. Is that right? Yep. That's a little overlap. Fair. I was writing, writing oh, as, you know, practicing. So I wrote short stories for a while and then tackled my first novel and sold. And I didn't immediately transition. Like I had my first sale and said, chuck in my veterinary career. You know, I, I did it gradually. I, ha I owned my own clinic initially. So I sold my clinic, but I stayed employed with new owners, went from full time to part time to weekends and finally sort of stepped away. But I still do some volunteer work. I still oh. work with a group of traps, feral cats, wild cats. And I go in one Sunday a month for about eight hours spaying and neutering them. I just keep my toe in a little bit in that veterinary pool, just in case I ever have to fall back, you know, I'm prepared with my scalpel to go back there. I can still I neuter a cat in 30 seconds if I need to. <laughs> That's very very cool. I didn't know that you still did that. That's awesome. Very neat. Someone also the follow up question this person had, and this might be the same as the favorite child thing, but is there a character you feel has autobiographical elements? Or maybe one no, you I feel the most with? 
I think, you know, no, no writer writes out of thin air. We're always drawing for elements of ourselves or elements of people yeah. we know. Um, I also sort of tell people, you know, Gray is who I wish I could be. Kowalski is probably more like I actually am. Um, <laughs> not as bright, you know, I, you know, Kowalski, but I, he introduced Kowalski, I introduced him Kowalski in, uh, in Ice Hunt, one of my standalone novels, but I liked him so much. He was a comic relief of that novel. And so I thought, I, I like him too much. I'm not going to leave him there. So I recruited him to Sigma many books later because I liked him so much. Yeah. Uh, so so anyway, that's so a little bit of me is in everybody, even the villains. Yeah, cool. All right. So let's see. We've talked about news and nonfiction. This is another question live from our audience. What fiction are you reading right now? Um, and are there any authors you'd recommend right now to fans of your own work? Um, I'm reading a, a book, another book that deals with virologists. Uh, it's a book that's coming out uh, May 5th, I believe. I got an advanced copy of it. Um, it's one of the cool things about being an author is they give you advanced copies. It's a book by an uh, author named Chris Holm. It's called Child Zero. It deals, again, with a pandemic novel, but sort of set into the future, set in 2027. Uh, where a pandemic uh, virus, a very unique virus, I don't want to give away what it is exactly, has sort of decimated the world and what the world looks like back then, at that time. So it's a, it's, a, it's a scary novel, but very well written. Um, what was the other question? I can't remember what other part, it's another part of the question. That's okay, just, are there any authors who, you other know, authors. yeah. Well, I mean, I still read a lot of the authors that I read, you know, both before in the early stages of my career, you know, I, I had a copy of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton on my desk when I was writing Subterranean, that first book. Because again, like I said, that was my first book. I'd only been writing short stories. I wasn't quite sure how to figure out how to write a, a novel. Didn't know how to pace a novel. And you know, I read a lot of novels, but I wasn't quite sure how to write a novel. So I thought, well, rather than reinvent the wheel, I'm going to you know, use Jurassic Park as a template or an example. So I would like, I would count the number of pages until you see a dinosaur in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Make sure about, about that page count is when I would introduce the monsters in my book. And you know, when does he kill off the first character in Jurassic Park? How many pages? Okay, right here. Well, I'll make sure that I kill off a character around that time period too. Uh, so I use that as a template. So Michael Crichton was a big influence. Yeah. Um, I love the adventure fiction of of Clive Cussler. I've been reading him mm -hmm. since I was a kid. Um, but again, I read James Michener. I love the the, sort of the travel log aspect of his stories. Um, I read a lot of uh, Tom Clancy and other type of military thrillers. Uh, I read a lot of fantasy, science fiction. Uh, so just, uh, I could turn my thing around. There's books across every genre up here. But uh, well, probably one of the biggest influences of my writing career though was um, I became sort of in, in high school, which a lot of high school seems to be prone to do. I got fixated on a certain type of book and it was the pulp novels from the thirties and forties. You know, Shadow, The Avengers, specifically Doc Savage. Um, his pulp novels were reprinted as Bantam reprints in the 70s. Cool. And there was 181 of them. And uh, I have all 181 of them sitting over there. And uh, they're, the premise of Doc Savage is that Doc Savage is a sort of a bigger than life hero who's surrounded by experts in their field, scientists or another experts in the field, and they protect against various global threats. Does that sound vaguely familiar <laughs> to what I write? <laughs> so, the whole Doc Savage novels was a big influence to my writing. Cool. It's cool though, because you yourself are someone surrounded by experts and bringing attention to some things that are good to bring attention to. So, just saying, you and Sigma and Doc Savage might have some things in common. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Now, even Doc Savage, one of Doc Savage's uh, teammates uh, is a character named Monk. And if you'll notice, there's a character named Monk amongst the uh, the Sigma Force members. So yeah. I actually lifted his name from uh, Doc Savage and put him in my books. Oh, that's so fun. That's a cool homage. We, all right, you know, someone, oh, we've got, man, okay. I am slow on these questions. So sorry, everybody, they're coming in hot. Okay, uh, someone wrote, how long does it take for a prolific author like James to churn out a big Sigma F novel? <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, they want to know how long it takes for you to write. Well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty structured. Um, I mentioned before I do the 90 days of research. Yeah. Uh, 
Then it takes me about uh, six months typically because I'm, I'm very regimented. I, I write uh, five double space pages a day, every day, well, five out of seven days of the week. Um, and that would generally will get my novel done in six months. And then there's about a month or two of editing and then I'm pretty much done. So it's about, about, a, you know, about a year, maybe just, just shy of a year. But those three months of research overlaps when I'm finishing another book. So I typically do two books a year because there's an overlap of the 90 days of research overlap me finishing a prior book. So uh, all said and done, it takes about a year, but there's a little overlap between the two books. What I'm doing with this research while I'm finishing up this book. Very cool. Thank you. Um, let's see. Oh, someone wrote, this is just a comment and it's cute. Uh, they said, I started reading you after a recommendation from someone who knew I liked the old works of Edgar Rice Burroughs and H. Ryder Haggard. You seem familiar with those names. Oh, that's cool. The, the, the old uh, masters of the, uh, the sci-fi gener generation. I've got a, a copy of Edgar Rice, a signed copy of one of Edgar Rice's Tar Tarzan books. And that was actually the very first book I remember reading cover to cover as a kid. Really? Um, Remember, I had a little bookshelf and I, I put Tarzan at the first and then I would read other books and I would put them, you know, Black Beauty by Seward and then the next book and the next book. And then I would measure not how many books I read, but how long I would measure. Like I've read <laughs> 16 inches of books at this point, uh, but I like Tarzan because um, it was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, because at the end of Tarzan of the Apes, there's a ape to English dictionary. Uh, oh. So, you know, this this fanciful, you know, that you could theoretically learn to speak ape if you could, you know, study this English. So just that, that little extra bit of, 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 of authenticity, that, that, that verisimilitude, making it feel real, I thought was really impressed as a kid. That is very cool. It also sounds like it was the origins of the veterinarian and the author. It's like all oh, the things. <laughs> I, I know what I mean. a lot of my early reading was animal type of books. Um, so... Uh, and I knew from third grade I wanted to be a veterinarian, so it was that was my going to be my career track. Uh, writing was just going to be a hobby, something I did on the side. My goal was maybe walk into a bookstore one day and see my book on the shelf, and I'm on my fortieth book, so it's uh, yeah. on the shelf. I, I was about to say, you know, you've more or less achieved that, I guess. Like exactly. some, you've had some mild success, you know, a little, a little bit. <laughs> Little publication called the New York Times has heard of you. Anyway, um, <laughs> someone wants to know when we might see the next Moonfall novel. Uh, the next Moonfall book two is called Cradle of Ice. I don't think that's going to release to the public yet. Uh, but that is the second book. Um, it comes out February of next year. Nice. February 2023, 23, yep. Awesome, all right. And then another question I have. So someone writes that they're an Indiana Jones fan like you are, and they loved your novelization of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, ooh, they, they also say they liked it so, so much more than the actual movie, but no offense to Steven Spielberg. Um, they said, how did it come about that you were chosen to partner on a book for such an iconic franchise, which I now just learned you're a huge fan of too. So like that must have been like and, you know, amazing. I I mentioned archaeologist was on my list of things. So of course, you know, I'm, I love indie from the get-go. Um, you know, I, I remember when they announced when the first movie was kind of coming out, I marked it on my calendar. I wanted to be there the first day. I didn't know what it was about. It's fairly cryptic, the advertising. You really didn't know what that movie was really about, but it was a Steven Spielberg movie. I was going to make sure I was there the first day. Yeah. And so I circled it on my calendar. Well, unfortunately, they had a sneak preview the week before and I had booked a whitewater rafting trip that weekend. And, but I was still intent to go to that sneak preview. So I remember like paddling really fast to make sure I got out of that river in time to make it to the, make it to the theater in time for the sneak preview. And I literally had to go from the river straight to the theater because I didn't have time to go home and change. So I was oh literally God. soaking up watching Indiana Jones for the first time, which is a great way of watching Indiana Jones, by the way. I, I sort of feel sorry for whoever sat in the seat after I was sitting in that seat. I like, <laughs> was sitting here before. I really like that movie. And, yeah, uh, right. Like, so, whoa, what am I in for? <laughs> so huge indie fan. Uh, Map of Bones, my first Sigma book, was reviewed by Publishers Weekly with this line. It's like a cross between Indiana Jones and Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. To this day, I don't know if they were insulting me by that comparison or whether they were complimenting me by that comparison, but I, I will take it as a compliment. So I, I was known sort of as an Indiana Jones-esque writer, especially my early standalones, had a lot of archaeology in them. 
So when they were looking for somebody to novelize the, the movie, they approached me and I just out of the blue, I get this call said, hey, would you want to do the novelization to the fourth Indiana Jones movie? It's like, I didn't, there was no hesitation. Yes. There was yeah, no yeah. like, <laughs> what are you going to pay me? Let's negotiate. No, just right. we're yes. just set the contract. I'm ready to do it. It was a great deal of fun to do because um, they wanted the book to come out the same day the book, the movie came out. Um, and so I got to, I had like a secret code to go onto a website where I can watch the dailies being shot of the movie. Uh, so I can so make sure what I was seeing from the script, uh, something that wasn't the script is in that detail. I won't tell you like what the costume exactly looks like. So I can see on the dailies, what this person's wearing. So it was fun to sort of craft the story in that method, but also, um, you know, all books are, are basically internal monologues. You're always experiencing the action through the mind of that character. You're experiencing their, their internal thoughts, which in the movie is all what's that you see on the screen. You're never, you never get the internal thoughts of the characters unless they do a voiceover at some point. So to me, it was a great deal of fun taking what was uh, uh, all very visually and then going into the inner world and building the inner world of indie while writing the story. So that was a great deal of fun to do. And also, um, you know, wherever they take a, a book and they turn it into a movie, they got to cut a lot of things out of the book to pare it down to become a movie. Well, when you're reverse engineering this, going from a script to a book, you get to add a lot of stuff. So I got to add like a dozen different scenes that were never in the in the movie. They just purely have my own imagination. Uh, so that was a great deal of fun. So almost like I was writing my own Indiana Jones, uh, you know, script in some regards, because adding all yeah. these scenes. That in the movie. So I got to flesh out things that I wondered about from watching the movie that was never really answered in the movie. I got to answer them in the book. So that was a great deal of fun. What a dream experience. It was, I mean, that was, I, I will cherish that one forever. That is pretty freaking cool, I have to say. Uh, speaking of movies, someone did ask earlier, but now we're kind of back on that topic. Um, so, I mean, someone wants to know, about the screen treatment for Sigma and they write, or is it all hush hush? I'm gonna go ahead and assume a lot of it's hush hush, but what can you tell us? Uh, very little, uh, it is hush yeah. hush. I'll, I'll tell at this point, it, it'll be honest with you, we're at the early stages. They're, they're working on the scripts right now, looking to attach talent, you know, whether it gets green completely, don't know. I mean, I've been burned a lot. I've had six subterranean, the first uh, yeah. uh, book I wrote was picked up as a, from NBC to be a miniseries. And uh, it made it all the way through the script. They attached talent. They're just about to go into production. And the all the heads of the NBC's creative force got canned and a, a whole new slate was put in place. And so I got washed to the side, just that close to seeing it made and it got washed away. So, so I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I got my loins girded against the possibility that it might all go away again. So who knows? Totally fair. I'm going to rephrase this person's question a little bit then because they want to know your dream casting, but I don't want to insult any potential talent that might get attached. So I'll ask, what's like one is, are there any actors that in your head you do picture maybe as one of your characters or had prior, you know, like, mm. you know, I get that question asked a lot is you know, how would you cast your, your you know, theoretical movie? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't like playing that game and I'll tell you why. Right. Uh, you know, when I was reading the Harry Potter books, you know, Harry Potter, I knew exactly what he looked like in my head. And then I saw the movie. And now when I go back and reread any Harry Potter, I cannot help but think of Daniel Ratcliffe as Harry Potter. And now that becomes, you know, so it's erased that character, that dynamic character in my head. And I know what Gray and Monk and Kowalski look like. I and mean, they are, you know, down to a T to, you know, to every little detail about them. I expect to turn around a corner and see them standing there. Uh, and I'm afraid if I say, hey, this actor is who I would like to play that character. I'm afraid I'm gonna start thinking of that actor as that character mm -hmm. start to fade away and the certain aspects of that character are gonna, or that actor are gonna become parts of what I'm gonna start infusing into the character when I really don't want that to be the character. So I try to avoid playing that game. You know, people will say, what do you think of this character? I'll yeah. say, yeah, it I don't, I don't put a lot of weight on it because I, I need to firmly keep those characters in my head. I dig it. That's a solid answer, I think. All right. Another question we have. We, we still have quite a few. All right. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. 
actually we made it through so many oh this is a fun one we were talking about this a little bit before we started the record but um do you have any say in the production of your audiobooks or more generally can you tell us about what that production is like and what your involvement in it is like they also add that they liked the narrator christian Vasquez, who did crucible yeah. and the sixth extinction he did also kingdom of bones so i got oh, a chance to, to watch him work uh which was incredible i mean i, I didn't realize how I just thought the narrators you picked up the book and they would just read it. You know, they would just record it while they're reading it. But it's much more involved process uh, where they're repeating the lines over and over again, trying to get the right, right cadence, and they'll record a little bit and they'll go back and you know brush something else up, and then they'll go forward. It's sort of a constant going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Wow. So it sounds it reads seamlessly when you listen to it, but it is it's such a it's such a dramatic process. And I'm really impressed. Uh, and I mentioned before that you know I, I tend I don't like to do readings at my book talks because uh, I always think that most readers, most authors that I've heard them read, are such a tendency to read in a monotone voice that slowly puts the audience to sleep. And and I would probably do the same. I don't have a great reading voice. I think unless you can do funny voices, you shouldn't be reading your own material. <laughs> so I'm really impressed with the 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 audit the uh, the talent. Do I have any say on who's picked? Yeah, they, they ask me, you know, if you know, hey, objection to somebody else, and I'll go listen to them. The narrator for Starless Crown, oh, mm -hmm. couldn't be a better narrator. I mean, just uh, I listened to her work prior to her her being selected, and it was she's just got the perfect voice that for the character for that world. Uh, it's just uh, I was just astounded. That's very cool. It sounds like a cool process to be involved in. Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, let me see here. We have time for maybe one more question, I believe, before we wrap things up. I'm gonna see what I've got left. Um, you know, I would just say, I guess, uh, you know what? I'm gonna be selfish and ask a question because I've heard some fun stories from this. Do you have any library memories that are fun or worth? sharing <laughs> yeah, just a, a celebration library event um that was pretty deal of fun because uh, libraries always were influenced in, in two ways uh early in my career i should say early, early in my youth rather um <laughs> we live in chicago in chatham ontario and i have three brothers and three sisters so you know that's a wow. family of seven kids so my mom would drag us to the library every saturday because she was an avid reader and she didn't say you had to read but she just sort of taught by example and so I remember just like you know crawling around the the uh, the kids section of the library. I was, I was addicted to these Danny Dunn scientific mysteries and to the Alfred Hitchcock Three Investigator series. And so I was just you know reading this book. It was that I think that uh, you know I love sort of spinning stories and terrorizing my younger brothers and sisters with weird. <laughs> if tears were involved, were the better. And I call it storytelling. Mom called it lying. And reading was like gasoline on that. So, you know, reading at, a, at such a young age, I think, influenced me to, to want to write. And then eventually, it, my first book was published in 97. And that was almost just the early ad. I had, the internet was not really that active or that useful to, as, a, as a useful research tool. So I leaned on librarians at the Sacramento County Library. Uh, they knew exactly, I was writing a book about Antarctica. I already admitted, never been to Antarctica. Uh, some of the, the subject matter I wasn't familiar with. So they were a great resource for you know, directing me, answering questions. I would, they were great. I would, they, they knew I was working on this novel and even though it was unpublished, they were very supportive, which gave me the encouragement to keep going. Um, and so it was, they were another influence you know, because they started my career and began in, is wanting to write and wanting to read and then eventually you know, help me get my feet off the ground oh well that's very that's so cool i love picturing you and your siblings and tears being good feedback and <laughs> all that is fun so thanks for sharing all that and how libraries have influenced you as well um unfortunately that's all we have time for tonight but fortunately you were able to join us this was absolutely amazing thank you Thank you. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say before I wrap it all up? I just hope everybody enjoys the book. You know, I hope they enjoy it on the popcorn level. And also, you know, hopefully they'll learn a little bit more about what's going on currently with the pandemic. I think I think they're in for a treat and uh, some new things to get curious about, which is always fun. So 
Have a great night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. That wraps up our Washington County Library event with James Rollins. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Tia Williams. Tia Williams is a tour de force in the style industry and has parlayed her firsthand experiences as a beauty editor into a wildly successful second career as a novelist. Her latest, Seven Days in June, became an instant New York Times bestseller and Reese Witherspoon book club pick. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>